0: All right, so uh, the question is about Anapanasati and um, kaya nupasana, or uh, mindfulness of the body, or investigation of the body, most specifically uh, calming the body formations. Okay. First off, let's look at the word bodily formations. Uh, The word formation here is a translation of the Pali word that is Sankara. And that in other suttas, like especially Sutta number nine, uh, called Right View, which is a deep, deep, beautiful exposition of Padikta Samapada. Um uh, this is actually um taught by Sariputta. and that in the uh part of the uh the description of the Sankara uh he mentions that there are three kinds of sankara bodily sankara, verbal sankara, and sita sankara. And the Sita Sankara is uh, Kind of strange because the translators translated always as mind, uh, and that by translating Sita always as mind, it makes things a little confusing because the word Sita in the Pali has more than one meaning. And in this case, what we're talking about is um, more of the emotional part of the mind rather than the frontal cortex so be careful that we're knowing that because the frontal cortex in fact is not uh, so much of mental formation as that the frontal cortex or the the human brain uh, the way that it's constructed the things that only humans can do are done with that part of the brain but all of the stuff that any animals can do we do with other parts of the brain that the animals have and in that regard there's actually a poly word for that frontal cortex that has uh that has the word manna in it or manute that in fact in the poly the word man, uh, uh, in the thai language the word manut they they borrowed that and you can hear the word man in the sense of human mankind <laughs> Those kinds of words.
1: So just to recap a little bit, so you're saying there's three forms of sankara, and like that's going to be what emotional, uh, body, and verbal, and right. these are is these are the things that are going to be active, I guess. Like these are going to be not calm, and then really? there's a process right. of like
0: calming the sankara. Exactly, exactly. And what we mean by that word sankara is not only old form things but also the forming things and so the word formation doesn't quite do justice Mm -hmm. to it in the sense that um we concocted and then stored but then we continue to concoct with both the stuff that we previously concocted and new stuff as it comes along Ah, uh, so uh, let's see. How do I do this? Miles Tufton has just wanted to join here. Let's see if I can.
2: okay? Oh, no, let not I'm not here to talk now.
0: Wow, that's noisy. Oh, sorry. but I don't see it. Never mind. Okay, so back to the formations. Um, These bodily sankaras then uh, can be seen as things that have been stored away as well as um, permanent things. An example would be then a musician has bodily sankaras <clears throat> that another musician doesn't have, or that are uh, or ordinary people that don't play music, they don't have those skills. Sports skills, the ability to catch a fish flying through the air, would be a skill, and that's part of the bodily formations. But if you um, also recognize that everyone has bodily formations that. uh, Let us say. uh, Actions. That are unnecessary. An example of that would be fidgeting and surprisingly enough, there are places where people go together to collect together in groups. And their primary activity in that group is fidgeting. Let me give you two examples of such a place. One would be a doctor's office where people are waiting to see the doctor. And everybody is sitting there nervous and fidgeting. Some people are twiddling their thumbs. Other people are wrapping their thumbs on the chair. Other, uh, their fingers. Other people are wiggling their legs and things like that. Another example would be at the bus station where people are waiting for the bus, but they're agitated and fidgety. In fact, when people are traveling, that's the time that we become agitated. And why are we agitated? It's because of the fear of the unknown, and there's always fears of the unknown when we're traveling. Until we get used to traveling over and over again, especially if it's the same route. Or the same thing is true about going to the doctor that people are nervous and upset when they go to the doctor. So while they're in the waiting room, they're going to show that nervousness and that anxiety in bodily movements. This is the kind of stuff that then we can start to become aware of is external bodily movements that are unnecessary and actually is a demonstration of that we're not at peace inside, and it's also a trigger to keep us continuously agitated. So, so, go ahead. So, that fidgeting, so I've noticed, like, when I sit
1: down um, and, and say I'm nervous or something, there's a lot of, like, internal, like, fidgeting, a lot of movement, maybe in the chest area or in, like, the neck area or in the back or something like that. And um, if I'm able to, I don't know, be, be aware at the point of contact or be able to like have the right um I forget the right terminology but like have the right mindset um so that those subside and rest um then that fidgeting kind of decreases is is that kind of the calming and the fidgeting you're talking about or am I off base yes there? that's
0: that's also one of the examples then would be of calming the bodily formations would mean then to allow the tension in the body to subside that okay. in fact um, it is quite common for people who are practicing various forms of meditation to complain about headaches. And they have the headaches when they're meditating. Surprise, surprise. Why is that? is because they're actually in their meditating uh, in their meditation creating tension rather than uh, noting it and allowing it to subside.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And because they're creating tensions, especially in the shoulders and the back of the neck and places around like here, that actually then um, uh, puts on the, uh, the tension, causes the blood to slow down. So basically what these tension headaches are, is basically a differential in the blood pressure between the blood pressure in the head and the blood pressure in the rest of the body because the um the veins the jugular vein is kind of closed off because of the the weight of the tension and then the blood goes through the arteries gets into the head people even talk about i have a pounding headache that pounding Mm -hmm. headache is a guarantee that that's a tension headache and they've gotten themselves tensed up and therefore the blood is flowing um, incorrectly, and that pounding is actually their heartbeat. Ooh,
1: that and, makes a lot of sense. And so that would be, this would be like a form of Sankara. Like that, uh, would that be like, what I guess that would be bodily, and then I guess it all kind of right. mixes together, so it could lead so to emotional So you could say more. that it's
0: a combination of old tension and Newly formed tension being formed by the old habit that formed it in the first place.
1: Is is tension a good synonym for Sankara or is that? Uh,
0: What's the not, synonym for
1: Sankara? Is tension a good way of like describing Sankara?
0: Actually, Sankara is larger than that. Okay, so it's but like a small part. you could use uh, tension as a subset of Sankara. Hmm. That's one example of Sankara, or formations. Skills, some skills are also bodily formations. Uh, the, um, the way that a, uh, a baseball professional baseball pitcher holds and throws a ball is different than the way that a five-year-old boy Picks up a baseball the first time and throws it. Okay. The skill that that professional baseball player has gained is because he's done it over and over and over again, refining his skills over and over and over again. We all have the ability to throw a baseball, but some of us could throw it 10 feet and others can throw it at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, like they like a professional baseball
1: player or like a, a violinist, they're kind of bringing about that formation that causes the violin to be like played or that baseball to be thrown in a certain way, and that's mm-hmm. going to be a combination of like those three Sankaras.
0: Well, at mostly though well, is the bodily training. That's the mostly thing the a lot training, of yeah. people do not understand about music is is that there are two kinds of music. There is body music. And then there is intellectual music and you could go so far as to say that classical music grew up in the way of taking bodily music and and putting it into an intellectual format mm-hmm. what is body music drumming you go uh, have you ever been to a drum meeting yeah <laughs> OK, they have them in Santa Cruz and in other places like that where everybody knows there's a drum meeting. They just bring whatever that they can bang on and they just have a lot of fun banging on stuff. Right. Well, you can take that one step further and say then that that's the, uh, the drums that the um, the primitive tribe would have on a full moon night or uh, something like that when they're out there drumming, African drumming. Then in fact, the African drumming, I found out when I was studying music in college. Uh, somebody keeps sending me messages and I don't know how to send the link to this call. <laughs> <laughs> to say, please join the call. Does anybody have a, um, a link? I've,
3: I can post the link in the chat if
0: you'd like to send it to them. So, yeah, p- post the link of this in, in the chat.
3: You might be able to copy that and send it to them?
0: And I'll copy it and send it to them, you're right.
3: I think a word often used for bodily sankara is muscle memory.
0: Muscle memory! Ah! Yeah.
2: Beautiful!
1: <laughs> so, so, I guess, like, there's going to be a muscle memory associated with being, like, calm and happy. And so, if that arises then I guess, like, you would feel those things. Is that, I guess I, I kind of said that poorly, but...
3: Yeah, I think, um, like, um, a sense? calming of the body could be um, put into muscle memory. It could be made as a habit, um, just like fidgeting could, right?
2: Yeah,
1: that, that seems, like, makes sense to me. So, like, yeah, you could recall that.
3: Or, like, taking a deep breath could be uh muscle memory habit or um, uh, where like um, fidgeting could be a response to anxiety. Uh, the deep breath could be a response to like sati or waking up.
4: I think we also have it for uh, mental and emotional events too. You know, like we're uh, in a mental way. Like for example, one thing I do is when I feel restlessness, I'll start reading the news for some reason. <laughs> Could make Andrea. you more anxious. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Go to Twitter. Yeah, it's like a, it's like mental version of smoking cigarettes, you know. You the cigarette only only sates the nicotine addiction, which by extending it. It it yeah, satiates it by extending it. It's the same with the news, social media.
0: Okay. So uh Knowing this is a foundation, when we start talking about it in the sense of the Dhamma, what the calming of the bodily formations mean is is that we begin to pay attention to the movements of the body that would be kind of automatic. Mm -hmm. So that we uh, take control of the body, just like we're taking control of the breathing Just because we're taking control of the breathing, that means that we're already beginning to take control of the body. And so we begin to um, notice the body's movements and we begin to also, uh, when we're intentionally moving the body, to really pay attention to what we're doing. So reaching, grabbing, stretching the arms, any kind of movement for uh, picking up something, uh, we begin to notice the body's movements. Also, any fidgeting that you have. That in fact, this is what part of the idea then is when people call it meditation, you know, everybody's idea of what meditation is. This is one point in time when they're practicing the calming of the body formations because the students are told to sit still. To not move their hands, to not move their legs, to keep the eyes closed. That You occasionally straighten the back, but other than that, you're holding the body still. And we begin to control the body that way. Now uh, there is a um, a rule in the Patty Malk about arms akimbo is the translation. And that there is two different translations of the word arms akimbo that I know. One of them is hands on the hip with your fist balled up and you're standing like this. Okay, an aggressive stance. And that aggressive stance is almost always done subconsciously. The only time that that kind of stance is done consciously is when you're playing with it, when it's uh, when it's a toy, when we're having a game. But when it's done unconsciously, it's a sign of aggression, and uh, people are feeling angry. There's another uh, word use for the word arms akimbo in the sense that the arms are flailing about. If this is especially true when uh let us say monks are walking around when they're walking around there's ordinary people they do whatever they want to with their arms while they're walking around some people will swing them um uh there's all kinds of movements but generally the monks are either out and about on pendabot or they're on a long walkabout on a two dog And in both cases, they're going to have stuff that they've got to carry, like the bowl. (laughs) That in fact, I've got a really interesting story about that. That for the carrying of the bowl, when you're out on Tudong or when you're um, on walkabout, let us say that in, in those days, there was a lot of Tudong in 1980s between Bangkok and South Thailand. The monks would go pilgrimage, but they'd walk down to see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And that was in the days before there was a major highway. And so there's a lot of back paths and the monks would know all of these back paths. And so they're down, they're walking, but they're carrying a bunch of stuff. And then the other time is when they're out on Pindabat, when they're carrying the bowl. Now the bowl bag is used for the tudong out when they're walking long distances. But when they're doing bendebot, the idea is that you don't take the bowl bag; that you only carry the bowl, and then you manipulate the lid with your left hand while you're carrying the bowl with your right hand. And then Bikubu, uh excuse me, then Po gives me an umbrella to carry during the monsoon, so now I've got an, an umbrella and the bowl and the bowl lid that I've got to manipulate while I'm carrying and holding the umbrella in the same hand. And so the idea that I got was, is that, well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to get a very small wire and I actually cut tiny little holes in the very top limb of the bowl so that I could put this wire and I could loop it around Actually, it was more of a string, but the point is is that as soon as I showed up for Pentabot, I didn't get to even walk one more step after Aond Poe saw that bowl with <laughs> that little wire <laughs> striped around to, uh, to give me you no know, this is this is training and we stood there right then, and I had to take that string off that bowl and so that I had to carry it with the hand and the bowl and the bowl lid and um the umbrella there's also the occasion uh to carry the yam bag which is you've seen monks with these yam bags but you have to carry that also in a certain way that uh that part of the arms akimbo is is that you cannot put the shoulder bag uh, on the shoulder it's not a shoulder bag it's a forearm bag. It has to be carried here, or in the case when we're on Bendabad, it's carried on the right arm draped over this way. So now you've got a bag here that people can put food in, like bananas and apples and, and uh, plastic bags of um, uh, liquid stuff. They can put that in the yam bag and put uh, rice and other things ready to eat in the bowl. So you've got the yam bag, you've got the bowl, You've got the lid that you have to open and close and sometimes turn it over so people can put piled stuff on um, in that uh, lid as as well and, and then balance that on the bowl and carry an umbrella and watch where you're going barefoot. So
2: where the- uh,
1: Go ahead. So with, with all these trainings, what's the, What's the purpose of it? Is it to learn how to be happy in different like physical situations, or is it just this particular
0: case? Look at what you're doing. mm -hmm. Uh, This is a wake-up call. This is (laughs) this is mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. This is watching what you're doing because you got to manipulate that umbrella basically with every step. You got to and you got paying attention to what's there. Yeah yeah you got to watch that umbrella You got to watch that lid you got to watch the bowl. you got to watch the yombag, bag you got to watch everything got to watch every step because you're going barefoot and not only that but archon poe is going to lead you into thriers uh brambles uh, um uh gravel streets okay yeah so it's like it's like new experiences
1: (laughs) it's like it's, it's seeing how you respond to like all these different situations Mm-hmm.
0: And then you have to go through literally a minefield. Literally a minefield? <laughs> Little a minefield, because <laughs> if you step on a bramble, you, it's like stepping on an IUD. <laughs> oh, no. All right, so this is part of the training of the body. So, that in fact, what we're doing is, is then, in some ways, we're adding new sand cars, but these are new sand cars that are skills. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the old sand cars, which just built up over time mindlessly. So, we begin to bring everything, all of the mindless movements, into mindful movements, so that we're beginning to develop the skill of. Uh, Basically calming these bodily formations, especially the ignorant ones, Uh, wiggling one's foot. uh, You know, like you're uh, crossing your legs at the ankles and then having one foot go bounce, 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 bounce. You guys have all done this. Also holding your hands and then we twiddle thumbs and twiddle thumbs. You guys have done this. Okay um extraneous movements that are unnecessary and if um let us say if you're reading a book surprise surprise most of the hand movements then will be in concerned with holding the book and there's just enough mindfulness while you're reading the book that basically you're kind of sitting still but little kids when they're learning to read you can see that they're quite agitated so this these calming the bodily formations you could say is calming tension calming agitation and bringing the body down to a place of rest or peace which is what they're practicing um when they're sitting for long periods of time they're actually practicing holding the body still however that doesn't solve the issue of the stress or the tensions that just keeps the bodily movements down because they can still stress themselves. Now, one of the things that is actually not a bad idea to do if you've got a tension headache, or if you've given yourself a headache during meditation, is to go ahead and massage those muscles with your hands. Allow these muscles to loosen up and relax a bit in the back. If you've got a headache, that's actually, that's very surprising. Give yourself a neck rub to remove a headache. Hello, Edward.
2: Hello. Hello, Hello guys. Good to see you. you. Hey, great to see you.
0: Hi. Okay, so, um, Edward, we have been talking about bodily formations. Mm-hmm. And uh, the various kinds of bodily formations, but there are basically two kinds of bodily formations, those bodily formations that were formed ignorantly, and that those formations that were formed skillfully, intentionally, for instance, learning to play music or learning to play a particular sport is a skill that we've developed, but that a lot of our uh, physical bodily movements are done unskillfully agitation shaking the leg uh uh, drumming the fingers all of this is done what they call absent-mindedly which means that the body is kind of doing this stuff by itself and that it's done partly because of um, the anterior cortex of the brain which is what actually controls the bodily movements all of this stuff is happening in the back And that what we want to do then is to wake up the front so that we can get some guidance rather than having all of these bodily movements. Uh, And so uh, when the monks are walking occasionally with only the yam bag, which we do in ceremonies and other things like that, then one of the, uh, the ways of, of walking is to make sure that the yam bag itself is not akimbo. It's not swinging around that you hold the yam bag in such a way that it doesn't move. And yet you're only holding it from uh, uh, the, the top. Area of it and the bag itself is is down below, so you hold it close so that it doesn't swing around. Another item that would be very interesting, and this is something to uh, um, to experiment with. Uh, it has to do originally for the monks with um, not touching women, but it gets a little bit in, more interesting than that in the sense of uh, in some and in some places uh, on some occasions there's a lot of people especially if there's big ceremonies and they have monks from all over the place and then all the people come and then the monk trying to get to the bathroom for instance when he has to go through the kitchen it's really a minefield and that the way that uh, that we that I had to practice was is that you're not going to maneuver and push your way through a crowd. That the monk will just stand there. Pointing himself in the direction that he's intending to go, and he waits for the women and the men and the children and everyone who is blocking his path to move out of the way for him so that he can move through there without touching anyone. The Asians know this because of centuries of this behavior. Westerners don't have a clue. And all they see is a monk standing there. Why is the monk standing there? He's standing there because he's waiting for you to get out of his way. And you don't even know that. (laughs) (laughs) And so this was something that that was uh, dealt with on occasion. But generally what will happen in those kinds of situations is, is that some tie Or Asian who is there and sees what's going on, will grab this guy by the arm and push him out of the way or or tell him, please move aside or something like that so the monks can go through. Now, that really uh, tests the monks' intentions. So this is actually a good practice for you, that uh, that if you're wanting to go through um, an area that has people in it, that you have to plan your path very carefully a little bit at the time so that you don't touch anyone. Imagine yourself going down the street in New York and not touching anyone and not uh, uh, being there uh, and available for other people to touch you, and yet you can still walk down the street. This is a skill to be developed. And it especially has to do with not having the arms out and moving around or trying to move people out of the way or doing any of that stuff. You just stand there.
5: You know, here, here in Sweden, we we are very uh, cautious of our personal space. You know, it's a very cultural thing. Uh, we grew up, like, we grew up taking a little
0: bit... <laughs> That's right. That is, it is a cultural issue, yeah. and that um, uh, how much social distance there is. One of the things that I know for sure about India, more than any place else, is that they have no consciousness about social distancing. So uh, there's so many of them there, and they and they're in each other's face all the time. And so um, <clears throat> just to talk to you, he's going to be right here. You know, you have to refocus your eyes because the Indians are going to be right in your face. <laughs> yeah. And so. Very uh,
5: interesting. I, 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 do, I, I, I do one thing when I'm in the store. I always, you know, I practice one thing in Sweden. I give up my cute place to other people that come, that are stressed. So, so when I'm going to pay, you know, for food. Uh, I, when it, I see someone come very stressed and I'm always offering their place and I'm offering their place and I'm offering their place and someone says no you can do it first and sometimes it takes a while <laughs> because somebody else gives me the, gives me my, you know, to, to, to finally do my, my grocery, you know, that's one thing I do. Do you think it's a good idea?
0: Or? You're breaking up and it's really a bit difficult for me to hear. One of the things that I'm picking up from you is that um, you're looking at it from the other direction of how people will stay out of each other's way. Mm. So that um, that if someone like the monk is coming, uh, the lay people know to get out of his way. But the important thing is that the monk knows that he's not going to maneuver his way through a crowd of people. Hmm. That he's not going to do that. He's not going to put himself in the position of being within three feet of anyone. And so that's going to be,
1: that'll be highlighting their intention. It'll be more clear, like, when they have this very, like, I guess, like, very, like, simple objective. Um, and so they'll be able to kind of like see what's going on in their body more clearly
0: is Absolutely. that part of it? as well as watching your attention so when the monk is around a lot of people and you can you don't have to actually be in the orange robes to be to start practicing this but that when you're out in public you don't make any movements you stand you walk correctly And you don't push people out of the way to get where you're wanting. If people are in the way, you just stand and stop and wait for them to move out of the way. There's one occasion I remember that I was at a Vietnamese temple in Boston. got a lot of photographs of that time where there was huge numbers of monks and whatnot. And naturally, time to go to the bathroom. So here I am going to the bathroom and I've got to go through the kitchen. And the kitchen was just filled with women. They all move out of the way slowly, Westerners and uh, Asians there. And then I get to the hallway where the bathroom is there. And guess what? There's about 12 girls, a dozen girls or so, all little girls aged from what not children up to teenage, and they're all sitting on the floor and they've got the whole floor completely covered with human bodies. so this is kind of like the
1: walking through the minefield thing you were going to talk about like you have this intention like i'm not going to touch anybody and then it's just like very difficult due to like your environment and your surroundings right and it's about like maintaining that and like no place to
0: put a foot there's no place to put a foot so just standing there and and um within let us say longer than i was hoping maybe 10 or 15 seconds and some elderly asian woman actually got all of those kids to get up and get out of the hallway so that the monk can go to the bathroom (laughs) Yeah. so if i if
1: i think back to like i guess maybe a kind of comparable example is like if i go on a walk and i'm absent-minded i'm gonna feel maybe grumpy or like agitated or be ruminating over things that have happened through the day but if i wake up and i'm trying to pay attention And like have the clear objective of like, I want to have a nice walk down the road um, and start correcting my body posture and things like that to be more in line with that intent. Um, Well, I guess like you're just kind of bringing that awareness in, you're you're like bringing that awareness into like kind of the daily activity, not to the extreme of what you're talking about. But um, it's all about just kind of seeing the seeing what's going on, like within your body
0: and your mind and your emotions. Is that Mm -hmm. kind of the goal? Yes. Uh, and so you could see that, especially for a middle-aged man who is a, uh, a new monk, g- learning to maneuver that is quite difficult. This is one of the reasons why, in general, new monks do not go out in public. They don't go for uh, celebrations and funerals and all of that. But for more than two years, at was Joe and Mok, and I never went out. But when I was in the United States, any opportunity to go out and I had to go out with them. That in fact, uh, one point was, is that there was not enough monks to go around in uh, this area, which was mostly North Carolina into Virginia, down into South Carolina. There was not enough monks to go around for the number of old retirees that had uh, uh, been refugees gone through the Vietnam War, gone through all the carpet bombings and everything, into the refugee camps, and then they come to the United States, get old, and die. Too many of them were getting too old and die, but we had also other situations. There was one situation to where there was some gang group stuff, to where the Laotian boys and the Vietnamese boys got actually into heavy-duty gang warfare, and I think altogether, I think that there was four Lao and two Vietnamese boys killed in, in this uh, street fight in Charlotte. This was back in uh, 2005, 2006, something like that. And what happened was is that both sides, all of the Vietnamese uh, people in the city went to the Lao funerals and the, fun- and the Lao went to the, uh, to the Vietnamese funerals. And they had both funerals, all the Lao boys in one funeral and all the Vietnamese boys in another funeral all on the same day, and it was all the same people. But we did have a lot of funerals, and so to have funerals, that means that all the monks had to go on duty. I remember that it was Mahasamsak, because of his excellent language skills. He was really an excellent language. He had good English, he knew Khmer, he could speak the difference between the Thai and the Lao. And so he was kind of the coordinator for these funerals, which didn't do us, the people who were living with him, any good because we always were coordinated. <laughs> so any funeral that he had anything to do with, his guys had to go to it. I remember one that we had, that we had to split our team up to where half of us had to go to um, Asheville while the others were going to the other side of the state. And so uh, when I was in the United States, there was a lot of opportunity to be around lay people to where when I was in Thailand, I could stay a monk all the time and just stay in the watch because my services were not requested or needed. Uh, So it was there in the United States that these practices had to be done, but I had been a monk now long enough that I knew what needed to be done without having to be told. And so, um,
1: and I guess like what needed to be done there was how to like skillfully navigate. Skillfully these crowds.
0: navigate in a crowd, exactly.
1: And yeah, with the, I guess like through the, the funerals and it just be, be skillful about it as opposed to like me. If I went, I'd probably be worried about a million things and just like nervous about the situation as opposed to being present. Right, but
0: amongst the, the whole job then in those situations is to be here now, to be present, to look at what you're doing. Watch what you're doing with your hands. Watch what you're doing with your feet. Uh, this is um, uh, it's actually quite excellent training. And so I would recommend for each of you to start thinking about that. How do you deal with other people physically that you're just in the area or the vicinity of them, but you don't have really any. In fact, you don't want to have any contact with you. You're out in public. You're in a crowd. You're in a, you know, a a lot that's got people you don't know and people you do and that kind of stuff. And so that's the point of time to really be mindful of what your body is doing. So these are these are the calming of the bodily formations in. To. uh, To be aware. Of the of the hand movements, to be aware of the feet movements, to be aware of the face movements uh this is all part of the training that the monks go through that westerners in general don't understand so when they hear things like um uh calming the bodily formations it sounds kind of weird but now you're getting this is exactly how it's done is by not moving so much or more importantly that if you are going to pick up something just slow down your movements. Don't grab things. Uh, we we learn to grab things when we we're kids. Kids grab things from each other on a regular basis. You know, quick grab. Just grab things like that. So now we're going to do our picking things up mindfully. Uh, question? Yes.
4: So, um, so one thing I've wondered about is the dividing line between uh, mindfulness and anxiety. Uh, Because I I can see the two (laughs) being related. You know, I could see it being an anxious sort of a situation if you're walking through a crowd and trying not to touch anyone. I could see one response to that might be anxiety. Um, So how would you uh, distinguish between the two? What's kind of the the border? You know, because I could definitely see, you could even say, Could you maybe even argue that anxiety is also a state of high sati? It's just sati charged with negativity. (laughs) It's like a negative version of sati.
0: That's Uh, exactly right. Okay, so right. Um, But your anxiety is coming from fear of doing something wrong. But the uh, the example is waiting for that group of teen, uh, children and teenage girls to get up off the floor so that I could go to the bathroom. That was not anxiety-producing at all. That was mastery. And that um, it needs to be discussed a little bit uh, in a way that in Thailand, uh, The the whole society and the monks are taught in a certain way that the monks are the highest class people in the country. There is only one person who is a layman who outshines the monks, and that's the king. So you have as social status, king, all the monks in all of their stratas, and then you have aristocracy. And then you have government people, and then you have ordinary farmers. That's the strata. In the West, that's not true. That in fact, preachers have no status in many places in the United States. And in other places, preachers have very high status. You can tell which places they are because of which preachers become politicians like Huckabee, wherever Huckabee came from. I think it's Arkansas. You can say that that's one of the places where religious leaders have very high status in the community. But in other places, they don't. Well, in Thailand, there's a certain status. That monks have. And so that's the status then that uh, that. In that situation where I'm waiting for all of those children, all those girls to move out of the way, I'm doing that not from, oh, I'm anxious and I've got to get to the bathroom. It's no, I'm the lion here. This is expected. This is the way the culture works. This is a monk. You've got to be the monk. you got to be in charge of the situation. You're just going to stand there firmly and just wait for those people to. Get out of your way. Even though it takes a whole lot more seconds than you want it to take. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of anxiety. It's a matter of power. And that's an important part because you can see that that's part of that Sama Sankapa, that the monks in Thailand are trained to be not feeling egotistically better, but whether they're in the station of having to be better. Mm. Okay, that so, you're better than ordinary people, that you're above that. You've got to be noble. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the requirement here.
4: <laughs> there's no other choice.
0: Pardon? There's no other choice. Yeah, there's really, there's no other choice other than disgrace. Or or, or Duca. Yes, disgrace and Duca would be the options. But the uh, the correct way to do it is is that um, oh, here's an example. Robert De Niro is in a movie. He is playing the part of let us say the biggest, meanest, baddest gangster in town, and that's the movie part that he's playing. While he's on stage and while he's in the movie, he's got to be that character all the time. He cannot revert to being Robert De Niro while he's on the set. This is what they call by method acting, that you've got to become that part. Um. Alex Baldwin, I think is the guy who's does it by the way. It doesn't quite do that when he is on Saturday Night Live being Donald Trump. He's not being Donald Trump. He's being a character of Donald Trump. But I think that you guys know the difference with what we're talking about. That when, when you're a monk, you've got to be a monk, you've got to act like one. And not only that, but you take the benefits of that station. This is kind of, I mean, this is a topic that really isn't discussed very much. But uh, it's part of the training of uh, being the monk uh, without even understanding the benefits. In other words, when I'm out with Achan Po and he kind of moves his arm just a little bit, just a small gesture to say, don't do what you're about to do. I, I learned that from him very early. I think that I mentioned this one time that uh, several weeks ago uh, on the screen porch uh, on the screen door or window, uh, a yellow jacket was trying to get out. He, it was trapped in the room. A yellow jacket that I had not seen the size of in so long. This, this yellow jacket was good two inches. It was about like this. When Tam saw the the yellow jacket, she was afraid. She saw this guy's dangerous. Because if yellow jacket sting, this this guy is yellow jacket on steroids. They have those kind of animals in Thailand. Well, I had seen that kind of um, uh, yellow jacket or uh, wasp before, and where I'd seen it was it while I was standing. Um, let us say in the shade by the side of the uh, gravel road at Watson and and one of these big dudes lands on Poe's head, <laughs> and mm-hmm. he continues to talk with me while that while that big um, wasp is on his head, and it starts to crawl down towards his left eye. And when it had gotten down to the eyebrow, that's when I made my move but my move was only about three inches. Just as my hand started to come up, that's when I tried, pull. he was waiting for me to do something. He was testing me, but to show the the strength of mind that he had to put me through the test with the bug on him, not on me. And so that's that slight little gesture that uh, became his, his hallmark for me, that all he had to do was just move his hand just a few inches was um, uh, the way that he, he would gesture or, or things like this to um, uh, masterful. Another quality that I saw in A-Chan Po was that because his English was not very good, he did talk uh, in Thai a lot, but the way that he dealt with me was almost always with one-liners. It was like, if you couldn't teach me the dhamma in three three words, there was no dhamma to teach at all. And so the kind of language that he would use would be not sure, which is actually a major part of the teachings of the Buddha, to be not sure and to be happily not sure, because that goes against the fear of the unknown and all kinds of other stuff. But ultimately, in fact, you probably heard of the 10 fetters and the highest fetter, the top dude. The last one on the list is ignorance, right? Okay, you have um, uh, the, the top five, um, the higher five would be a Rupa Raga and Rupa Raga. Then you would have, which is has to do with fear of existence and non-existence. Then you have restlessness, you have mana or comparisons or um, ego um, in the sense of uh, competition. And then the last one on the list is ignorance. And what we mean by that last one on the list is, is that learning to be comfortable while you're ignorant. Because there will be things that you do not know. Now, this kind of ignorance is different than the normal kind of ignorance that's in the second noble truth. That kind of ignorance can often be um, translated as delusion or denial in the sense that it's not simply not knowing. You just don't know. But rather that what you do know is not or it's wrong and with this ignorance that means that we begin to go to the point that we stop having ideas and allow real ignorance to be there just not sure don't know it's really okay for you just to not know things but it goes against our instinct because our instinct has to do with if we don't know something it might be dangerous Fear of the unknown. I mean, this is the rise of tribalism. All of tribalism is based upon the fear of the other. We don't know them. They're not like us. They're a different color or a different religion or their guns are made differently than ours. Or I'm thinking about AK-47s now. Mm-hmm. Or whatever it is, those people are different than we are and we don't quite understand them. Therefore, they are dangerous. And so here Achan Poe is is just walking around just randomly almost, telling me, "Don't, I'm not sure. Not sure." But that not sureness also has the quality of the invitation for investigation. And so I would say overall that that's the number one thing that Buddha, uh that Achan Poe would say to me would just go around saying, "Not sure." Not sure. Um, another one that he would use would be Tatata, which means basically in in the Pali, be here now. The name of the Buddha that he gave himself was Satagatha, which means the one who is here now. So here you have Bhikkhu uh, Aichan going around saying, be here now, be here now. But he would do it at really strange times. The times that he would do it would be when he could get close to me without him me knowing it. So we're standing in a group or a crowd or there's people all around milling and piecing, passing back and forth. And then I hear just right behind my ear, ta-ta-ta. And I know that if I hear it on this ear that I got to look over here because that's where Achad Poe is now because he's just walked by me. a lot of the training that, in fact, that he gave was nonverbal at all. Another example of that nonverbal communication is that he would stand out front of the cootie that I lived in and just stand there waiting for me to figure out that I should be looking out the window to see what's there because it's him that's just standing there. But this is what brings on a, a sense of feeling that something's happening or a sense of waking up um and i do that uh, regularly now in fact i've gotten to the point that i can do it with jane jane is tam's daughter and she's the one who is now going out um uh, because she's actually stranded here on copan because of the um, Transportation here in Thailand right now is, is closed down, so she's here on the island, cannot get back to Bangkok, and so she does the shopping. But when she's come back, I don't know when she's going to come back. But when she rounds the corner out there at the road, I know it immediately. When anyone comes onto the property, I'll know it before the dogs do. When I'm in the house, I may not be so much aware, but when I'm out on the porch, I'm very much aware... Of it, But the the one that's the most interesting is, is that with Tam, when she comes home, I know it before she's in sight, before I could even see the truck, because the truck is, you know, behind the trees and the woods and whatnot like that. And she hasn't turned the corner to come into the driveway. And still I'm watching, waiting for her. Yep, there she is. And I keep getting this positive confirmation that I know when she's coming. And I know that that was because of the training that I got from my Poe, that he intentionally trained me to just start to be aware of sensory. I don't even have a, um, uh, a good description of it. It's sort of like a knowledge or a feeling that something is happening out there and I should go look. This is also part of the serendipity. Now... Many people, when they think of spiritual powers, they'll put this one in there. That uh, They could call it clairvoyance or the knowledge that something's happening. But it's not magic. It's something that's just real. It's a training that the mind can go through. Don't know why it is because she's certainly not close enough for me to smell her. She's not close enough for me to hear her. She's out of sight. And yet I still know that she's there, so I don't know what senses it is that picks this up, but it's got to be real. It cannot be magical.
5: That is very weird, but it happens very often. It's very real, but it happens very often if you you notice it, if you have the composure to be present and notice it.
2: Yes. But it can
5: also happen in different types of ways. Like yesterday, I was looking at the picture of a a friend and a friend's daughter. A few hours later, I meet uh, uh, this daughter and and the mother in in the street. And they uh, and they are like, hi, how are you looking concerned? And I'm I'm fine. And they then they tell me that they're on the run from my friend, his hmm. family. They're on the run from from him, and they they're hiding from him because he hit the children. And I was just randomly looking at his picture with her, and just looking very long time. I didn't know why. That just that day, I was sitting and looking at his picture. So, uh, and then I was like, okay, you know, I, I help her, but so much I can, but that's not the point. The point is that, that I, why was I sitting and looking a little, little bit longer at this picture of also two? And then I meet, I, I have not met them for several months. They have been hiding from this guy, from my friend, and I, and I have not spoken to him maybe six months. So that's
0: what,
4: uh, that is something. I don't know, what is,
0: what is it? Do you know? Just mm-hmm. um, kind of, go ahead, Robert.
4: Oh, oh sure. Just um, one quick question. It's kind of referring back to the previous topic, but I, I have to go in a few minutes. So I just wanted to ask the question before I have to go. Um, but um, about this anxiety versus sati. Okay. So one example of this might be, um, I think it might be, say, like you're visiting a family member um, and, you know, this family member is very judgmental, you know, and so you're anxious about seeing this family member um, because they might be judgmental in some way. So you notice when you're around them, you um, and they're let's say they're also a gossip. Let's throw that in there, too. They're judgmental and they're a gossip. And so you go to visit them and you're on alert you know, and it's like you have a lot of sati, a lot of mindfulness, because you don't want to give them stuff to chew on, you know, um, but it doesn't feel pleasant at all, that level of alertness, you know, or say you go into your workplace, and the workplace is toxic in one way or another, and so you're anxious, you know, you're high alert, high sati, you know, but it's negative, um, so how would you suggest, is say the don't know, just saying, I don't know what's gonna happen, you know, it's okay, you know. Um is that Absolutely, really the best that's,
0: that's that's correct. You see, mm-hmm. uh the way that you've described it is is that you are already uptight and anxious because you expect things to go bad with this critical doctor. And therefore, for because you're already expecting disaster from him. That's why you're on alert. So your alertness is uh, uh, based upon the anxiety of the fear that something's going to go wrong. So your anxiety is actually now independent of your alertness, because you could in fact be uh, so full of anxiety and so, um, uh, let us say, fearful of this guy that you begin to do things that under ordinary circumstances you wouldn't do, and these things are for sure going to tick him off. But we do it out of, out of real ignorance rather than, um, so if you're going to be uptight and anxious, be on guard and be alert is the right thing to do. However, being on guard and being alert for uh, being careful around this guy is not the object the alertness should be for the anxiety itself mm. rather than trying to deal with him uh in an alert way full of anxiety the right thing to do is just go to the bathroom or something get ready for anxiety and then go back with the strong determination that you're not going to be uptight and anxious but you're certainly going to be on guard with this guy That sure. The anxiety is optional. Sure. So the anxiety is the problem, not the situation. Right. The anxiety is the problem. In fact, the anxiety is what's created the situation. Because of your attitude. If you had the attitude, oh, mm-hmm. he's my favorite uncle, and I get so much good advice from him. If that was your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> So your attitude is what created your anxiety, and then your anxiety and the fear of danger, this part of your attitude is what's causing you then to be on high alert. Uh, the, uh, to, the training then would be to just be on high alert because you're in charge of the situation and it's your job to be on high alert. And anxiety-free. Sure. that you don't sure. have to have that anxiety, that you can actually, while you're talking to him and the anxiety comes up, you can begin to pay attention to that anxiety and start taking some deep breaths, breathe it in and breathe it out.
4: So it, it's interesting that you can be alert, but not worried or anxious.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, that's... Um, I, I think we often combine those in our mind as having to imply one or the other if you're alert oh then you must be worried or anxious but no that's not necessary right like you could be like an athlete um like a basketball player or someone like that
0: absolutely out on the court the basketball players uh have various kind of feelings and one of the feelings that the basketball player has is extreme confidence i've got this made i'm going to go make that goal and everything is good Okay, but not all the basketball players have uh, supreme confidence when they're out on the court. Many of them, in fact, the younger ones will be full of anxiety. They may be, in fact, uh, having a lot of anxiety if the other team has a bully. Then, in so, fact, teams want to have at least one bully on their team t- just to uh, intimidate the other team. <laughs>
4: Sure, and it's the same level of alertness, you know, regardless, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, the confident player and the anxious ones are both alert, but yeah. one is more is relaxed and alert, and the other is anxious and alert, and so the relaxed one will win because they don't have all this interference going on um, from their nervous system.
0: Generally, that's the case. This is seen in many, many cases. One example would be in the debate. You've talked you've heard about uh, ad homium attacks. Ad homium attacks are not allowed in uh, in debates because if you attack your opponent, the debater himself, then that distracts him from his debate and the topic. In other words, by attacking him, making him feel bad, afraid, angry, pissed off, and any of that kind of stuff, now his feelings will interfere with his debating skills. You see so the that the only type
4: of debate where that's allowed is the presidential debate. Every other type of debate is is too noble for that ad hominem attack. <laughs>
0: right. Well, here's a that's clear true. example of it during the nineteen six two thousand sixteen debate between Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump actually started stalking uh, Hillary Clinton while she had the microphone. She was on the stage and talking and whatnot like that, and old Donald Trump comes behind her and starts fidgeting behind her, stalking her. He did that intentionally to detract her from Mm -hmm. her talking. He wanted to be the star in that particular instant, and everybody was looking at what he was doing, And wondering why um, uh, Hillary Clinton didn't turn around and bopping in the face with her microphone. That's what most guys would have done if Donald Trump had been uh, uh, stonking, you know, right behind um, uh, most people that I know of. They would have turned around and told him to get out of my face or step aside or whatever like that. But Hillary was intimidated by him. She She should have given him a kiss. That would have been better, right? She could have kissed him with her lips instead of that microphone. But the microphone, that's a really good idea.
5: (laughs) Uh, Going back to... Is a study in uh, in the suffering?
0: Um, Actually, sati will help you come out of the suffering. Because most of us suffer ignorantly. We don't know that we're suffering. Uh, you can see people sometimes are really angry and you say, hey, man, don't be so angry. And he says, I'm not angry because he's he's denying it. He doesn't know that he's angry. So mindfulness or waking up to how, you're, how you feel is absolutely uh, essential. Number one point is to wake up and look at what you're doing. Wake up and look at how you feel right now and if you feel uptight and anxious at least now you know it before you were just uptight and anxious but your mind was on whatever you were trying to do now you've got a recentering process and you recognize that you're full of um uh, uptight feelings so now we can deal with that directly with The kind of thoughts that would give us uh, good feelings rather than, oh, no, what can go wrong here? The answer uh, or a better response would be, it doesn't matter what's happening here. I can handle it. Those people, they're not going to bother me. Only I can bother me, and I'm not going to do that right now. I don't have to bother myself. Nobody makes you uptight or anxious. We do that all by ourselves. In fact, the anxiousness and that uptightness is part of the bodily sankara. It's done ignorantly. Why do we get uptight and anxious? Because we were in the habit of getting uptight and anxious, and we got uptight and anxious when mommy was about to hit us because we were drawing on the wall when we were three years old. We get into these habits, and then we live with them and we're not aware of them. But if you are aware of your uptightness, then you can do something about it. You can change the way that you're thinking and change the what you're doing with the body. Normally when we're uptight and anxious, we're also not breathing very well. And so uh, intentionally going back and taking long deep breaths and uh, you talk yourself into being anxious, for instance uh robert your um your point about um uh the critical doctor that you you already see him as a critical doctor that's why the anxiety is there. It's not because he's being a critical doctor in front of you. you walked up to him already anxious. He did not create your anxiety. you did that, sir. Sure. Guess what? Not everyone responds to him the same way that you do. Sure. And more than likely, you responded to him the second time the way that you did the first time because the second time uh, that you dealt with him, you were expecting him to be critical because he was the first time. And so now every time you see him, you expect him to be critical and uptight with you. And so you go to him with your anxiety in the first place. It's your habit. This is a bodily sankara that that can be calmed down. You can intentionally say the next time that I see that guy, I'm going to get myself into a really, really good state to where I'm not uptight and I'm not anxious at all, and then I'll go talk to him. I might enjoy the conversation with him finally. Sir. So recognize that the anxiety is optional. And those that's a bodily Sankara being uptight, being anxious, feeling anxiety, uh, uh, feeling a sense of doom or dread. These are all bodily Sankara's they have bodily manifestations. And they are directly related to the Sita in the sense of the emotion. So the body and the feelings are deeply tied together. Would you like to have a body that had no feelings? Would you like to have all feelings and no body? Neither one of those things are possible. <laughs> But either
4: could be fun, you know, depending. It'd <laughs> be interesting to try it out.
0: <laughs> well, that's magical thinking. The reality is, is that the body and the feelings are integral with each other. The way the body operates is chemical. The way that the feelings operate is chemical. They use the same chemicals.
5: But when when, when you breathe good, when you breathe very deep breaths, you are able to stand very uh, so much more pain. I, I, I have noticed a bit different in uh, my ability to sustain physical pain. Since I started breathing the
0: whole day. Okay. Well, in that case, what you could say is is that the body has a sensation that you're calling pain but instead of focusing on that pain and focusing on how much I hate that pain and I wish that it would go away, in fact, I call it pain because I hate it and wish it to go away, but now what we're thinking about is the breathing instead. Here, let me pay attention to the breathing because when I'm paying attention to the painful place, I don't like it. Maybe if I can breathe myself and get myself into a good state while breathing then I can go look at that pain while I'm feeling good, and now it's not pain, it's just a sensation. This is actually part of the Gawanka technique, but I think it could be taught better than having strong determination settings. You but can on the cool. breathing,
4: i sorry,
5: okay. longer.
0: Yes, paying attention to the breathing or paying attention to something else rather than paying attention to the poor me. I hate my my arm because it itches. We could just pay attention to something else.
4: And that also helps with anxiety, breathing as well. If you take a big, deep breath, it just soothes the anxiety it,
0: it's, a, it's amazing that a deep breath actually will just rid that stuff i mean the deep breathing itself will break up the tensions that have formed around the the midsection where the blood has all of that um uh cortisol and uh adrenaline in it and so that
1: so there there are ways to breathe that make you more anxious. I mean, that. I mean, I guess that would be you take shallow breaths, or like you could breathe into your chest, or use your shoulders or your back to breathe, as opposed to the stomach. Uh, I, I guess, like, I don't really understand all the factors. Um, well,
0: that's then something to investigate, then, isn't it? Yeah, that's it's like what to leads to a happy so breath. go and investigate or play with the breath. What different breaths do I have? that will cause the body to feel certain ways. You said different breaths. Okay. Yeah. So different. So what different
1: bodily movements can you take? Like how does that affect how you feel? That would be one way of practicing. Mm-hmm. And so if you notice one way of breathing leads you to a more wholesome state, then that's probably a good direction to go in.
0: Yes, absolutely. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's uh, true physically, but it's even more true mentally.
1: Mm-hmm. And then having the like investigating what feeling what what feels good, I guess that that's going to require you to I guess like have good markers to look for. I guess like um, Sadi and PD and things like that.
0: Well, we can we can do it that way, but we can do it in a reverse order, in a sense. And instead of um, intentionally looking for things that we like, we can begin to just experience what is happening right here, right now, with the intention of it's okay. I can I can Definitely. learn to yeah. like this too. That yeah, one, like you could.
1: You could be like, I mean, I guess even something that you might normally associate with feeling uncomfortable, like I guess a tension in the chest. If you can sit with that with a good attitude, you know, that's going to completely reframe it, and um, you'll be able to better understand like what a more wholesome breath feels like. I guess if you're able to relax that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that right? Yeah.
0: So Yes, that's that's exactly correct. So uh, by by observing what is in the sense that it's, it's OK. The first thing, in fact, that I would recommend for students is when they're practicing, uh, having these gladdening thoughts, the number one. Thought that you would want to have would be that everything is safe and secure.
1: Yeah, because that's a huge.
0: You do have feelings of fear and anxiety and that uh, by talking ourselves, I mean, we literally are living in an environment. Every one of you can look around and recognize that this environment right here right now is safe. That this is not dangerous. This house is not in, in imminent danger of falling over. I do not hear any sirens, so there's no police around, etc. like that. And so uh, this is also the quality of emptiness or sunyata, is to pay attention to the fact that the things that are dangerous are not here. This place right here right now is empty of all dangers. Mm. So if this place right here right now is empty of all dangers, That means that I can feel secure. I can feel safe. I can feel um, safe enough that I can begin to relax.
1: Hmm. So with the, I I guess like kind of what Robert was talking about, like, so there's that formation of anxiety. um, Is there like a clinging towards that? And then when we get into this attitude of feeling like I'm safe, that's when... It's possible to, like, let go and let another more, like,
0: wholesome formation arise. Um, Yeah, like like the uncle that he's talking about, that he can have thoughts about, I am safe with this guy. He can't touch me. I don't care what he says. It's not going to insult me, but only I can insult me. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of ways that we can talk ourselves into going into situations that we originally thought were dangerous because it was one time dangerous many years ago. But in fact, in this state, it's not dangerous. He's just an old man in a pinstripe suit standing in a room and he, and he might jog on a bit, but he's not going to harm me. He's not going to hurt me. Why should I be afraid of him? Mm hmm. And so that that's the kind of investigation that we do uh, to investigate why do we have these bodily Sankaras right now? Why do we have these uptight feelings? When yeah, nothing- like what
1: or what selves or like what? Um, I don't know. It reminds me of like the samu is Like what? What can What attitude can I take on to help me be present with these? Um, with these feelings.
0: Um, well, first off, we've already talked about whatever those those feelings are. We can breathe into them. Mm-hmm. But as we're breathing into them, we're breathing into uh, them with the thoughts or the words of, "I can relax. Just relax. everything's going to be okay. No problems here. I can handle this situation. And then we can handle the situation with full alertness, but it doesn't have the, uh, the anxiety there because we, we talked ourselves out of the anxiety just like we talked ourselves into it.
1: Yeah. Dang, thanks for that. Sorry for talking so much,
0: everybody. Uh, but you know, that really helps. That was a great explanation. That's great. Well, I'm glad that this was a, a, a topic that was good for you. Uh, Clinton, good to see you again also. Yeah, it's great to see
1: uh, great to see you too. It's been a while.
0: Thanks for joining in. And this was a very good topic for us to talk about, was bodily sankaras, of how we get up tight, how we're not watching what our hands are doing, arms akimbo. Um, and so you can see that, the the sitting meditation actually does have that bodily component of calming the body unfortunately that's not enough for many students they will sit there with their body still and and still feel uptight and anxious or wanting things while they're sitting there rather than just relaxing just everything yeah (laughs) for a long time yeah i feel like i would sit
1: and just work myself into an anxious frenzy. <laughs> like I'd be focusing so much, I'd be like, oh, like there's that, be like worrying about that thing, like trying to make it go away. Um, but that attitude kind of just breeds more of that. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. been interesting lately, kind of like thinking back on our talks and um, kind of like loosening that grip and seeing it seeing those
0: like things like anxiety, um, be able to go into the background. Exactly, exactly so. Yeah, that you can, in fact, let go of that stuff. And keep remembering, you talked yourself into it. You talked yourself into it. You talked yourself into your anxiety. If we know that we talked ourselves into it, that means that we can talk ourselves back out of it.
1: <laughs> it's true, yeah, it's hard to, yeah, definitely. That's a hard to realize sometimes, but when it clicks, it's it's a nice feeling
0: yeah and so that's why we want to have wholesome thoughts that we use unwholesome thoughts to talk ourselves into feeling bad and the buddha recommends let's you have wholesome thoughts and talk ourselves into feeling good again let's gladden the mind let's get some some joy here let's get some um uh, uh security and safety and comfort and satisfaction but those things mm-hmm. are optional and you could do that just by the words that you use and your attitude and so these things work together right sati and right effort and right view circle around each other uh to build those skills and then we add that right noble attitude i could do this
2: Hmm.
0: and so we do it then by talking ourselves into it and one of the ways that that we have is that right noble attitude i could do this this is successful. If I could do it one time, I can do it again. And if so I, that, I guess twice, I can do it three times. And so
1: those monks that you are talking about earlier, like those practices that they did, like trying to go through a crowd of people, they're having that correct attitude while they do all these, like, really difficult tasks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I can
1: wait for these people. I don't have
0: to push my way through to the bathroom. I can stand here and wait.
1: Mm-hmm. It's almost like sittings, the most basic
0: (laughs) version of this and like most controlled version. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to start simply. This is what uh, seclusion is all about, is getting away from it so that you have very, very few things to interrupt with your skill. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, In any music school, they have um, private studios. Many of them will have a piano and many of them have nothing at all. The reason for that in the old days is because it was hard to move pianos around, but most of the other musical instruments. And so the point is, is that the the student does not want to practice his music in the dorm because it's noisy in the dorm. (laughs) He annoys
1: everybody yeah.
0: Right. And he annoys everybody else. Okay, he does not practice his music in the dorm. He goes to the studio where it's a small room that he can close the door, and about the only thing that he can hear is the musicians in the um, not quite completely soundproof walls. And, And so that whole point then is exactly what we're trying to do here with the practice of Anapanasati is the same thing that the music students at the university will go to a private little practice room. But in fact, that's also something that, uh, at, that was at Gawanka's place. They built a, uh, not only did they have the, um, the big nama halls and things like that, but they had one place, that, it was actually staked like a, uh, like a stupa and it was circular, but it was filled with very small, tiny little cells for the students to go in there and have complete privacy while they're practicing. So this this whole idea of seclusion is a major part of the teaching of the Buddha, but it's also part of our society. This is why, why people have vacations, is to get away from it all. Unfortunately, when people have vacations in the West, they spend a lot of money and go to a resort and do a lot of activities. And so when they, by the time their vacation is over, now they need a vacation from their vacation.
1: How do you find seclusion, Parker? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean uh go ahead. I was just gonna ask Parker, like how do you how are you able to find seclusion? Do you like do you go on like into the woods or do you like um do you just have a place at home that you're able to kind of get away from things? Like I mostly just sit in my office. like that's something I definitely need to work on.
3: Um, well, uh, I live with my family, but I have my own room, so it's fairly secluded right here.. Um, as long as we're not watching, um, YouTube or anything, uh, you can really just close your eyes and take a few breaths or I have a cushion over there, but more and more, I've just been like, I don't even need to think about sitting on the cushion. I can just find it right here.
1: Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. About the same for me, but yeah, but I wanted to go into the woods for a while. Like I know you were mentioning some people doing that earlier. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: I, I'm surprised. Yeah, Keyshawn right now is not on our call because he's out there in the woods. Either that or he was dinner for the bear.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd definitely be worried about bears the entire time, even if there's no bears in the state.
0: Well, Clint, Clint, it's been really good to see you again, and we've been going on for about an hour and a half, so let's finish okay. this, this call. Parker, good to see you again, as always. Yes, yes. And, and Both of you for catching me up on, on what we were talking about with the, with the YouTube. So, guys, we'll see you later. This is great. We'll do this every week. Yes. Yeah, talk to you later. later. Bye. Come back. Right. See you.
2: All righty. Bye-bye.